I know that uh, uh, Paul McKenzie here didn't invent this. I've said other pastors who have done this kind of stuff before, and I don't always, partially sometimes I just forget and I don't make a habit of it, but um, I don't always have a stand for the reading of uh, the passage. Um, but today, I want, you to, I want to focus you in on a passage that I think will serve as, um, as kind of a, 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 a way of understanding the entire passage. Um, just one small passage that actually isn't where we're studying today, but that I think will help you engage with the passage as an entirety. So if you will, stand, and I'm going to just read this to you. It's not even going to be on the screens. I just want you to hear it. This is from Luke chapter 9, and in Luke chapter 9, what's happened is Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi with his young disciples, and uh, this is a, a seat of pagan worship in uh, northern Israel, and in this, he asks them. It happened as he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Father, I pray that um, as we dive into this section of John 7 today, that what will the question that will be on our hearts will be, who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? Father, I pray that um, whatever ideas that we came in with as to who Jesus is, that don't come directly from your word, that we would repent of those and instead be prepared to engage like the crowds are having to do in John chapter 7 with who your son is. And I pray that with humble, open hearts, we'll be listening to that today um, and prepared to have the Spirit work in us and through us. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. And then as we jump into this next part of John chapter 7, I realize we need a little bit of an explanation, a cast of characters, so to speak, who these people are. Um, that we're talking about, because it can be confusing, especially in John 7, as to who you're dealing with if you don't know what these different headings mean. And so one population that you're dealing with is the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees um, were the kind of the, the upper echelon of the religious leadership. They were kind of the, the top pinnacle. Um, they were very serious students of Scripture, and what you would have had at the time of Jesus in the first century is that a certain percentage of them would have been um, very much so devout, um, very um, sober in their worship of Yahweh. They sought to follow his rule. They sought to follow his law. They sought to understand that. And, and a lot of them, a lot of their discussions and debates are very much so they're honest. They're honest debates that they're having in their hearts and with other people. <clears throat> Another percentage of the Pharisees would have essentially been mafia. Um, they would have been the power brokers, they had bought their way into these positions, um, especially the, at the time of Jesus, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, meaning the religious leadership. Unlike America, um, Israel at the time of Jesus was a theocracy. They had no distinction between the, the church leadership or the religious leadership and the government leadership. Those were the same people. So the Sanhedrin was the religious supreme court of their people. Um, they interpreted the law, and the law was not a constitution, it was the Torah, the first five books of Scripture. And so this is the debate, the discussions that were constantly going on with them. Again, many of the Pharisees, and we see both in the Bible, we see Pharisees who are um, good-hearted, but either confused or, or disturbed or whatever, and certainly Jesus was messing up their world, 
um, as he does ours, or they were truly just, just kind of professional con, uh, con artist types, but who had worked, found a con that worked for them and had bought their way into positions of power. They were known to be, um, they, were, they were murderers and they were um, racketeering and all that kind of stuff was going on with them. And so that's one population and we'll have to wrestle through with them periodically when we run into them. Then we have what are called the Jews. In the book of John, especially in this section, when you see the Jews, that doesn't mean all of the Jewish people. It's not another word for Israelis or Israelites. Um, it means the, the upper echelon, the, the leaders, but the Pharisees would have fallen into this. They would have been one part of this. But this includes synagogue leaders, um, teachers of the law, scribes, Sadducees, others. It would have included all kinds of other groups. The Pharisees would have led these people, but the Jews here means the people in the know. These are the, these are the top people, the, the kind of elite. Then you have the crowds. And in Israel at this time, let's get the, oh, get the crowds. Um, the crowds. So the crowds are going to be people from all over the world who are in Jerusalem, especially at this time. Remember, this is during the Feast of the Booths. It's one of the pilgrim feasts. There would have been millions of people in Jerusalem at this time, in John chapter 7. Obviously, most of them would have been Jews, but you would have had people there for the spectacle, for the show. There would have been Romans there, Greeks there, um, Africans there. People from all over the world would have been there. <laughs> Some who were converts to Judaism, but many of whom were just there because it was a great show to watch. I mean, they spent a lot of money on this. They spent a lot of energy on this. Modern-day Feast of Booths. This is a recent Feast of Booths um, near the temple. That's what you would have expected all over Jerusalem, except there would have been the booths set up everywhere, little kind of eight-by-eight eight buildings everywhere, all over the city, on the rooftops, on the balconies, on the ground, Everywhere, with millions of people wandering around. And so you remember, <coughs> Jesus had decided not to come, um, probably by the leadership of the Spirit. It was not his time to go. So he didn't go for the first part of the feast. Partway through the feast, he goes. If you heard last week, Paul showed us that what happened was he goes and he begins to start proclaiming himself. The crowds, these are from all over Israel and all over the world. They don't, except for the ones from Galilee, they don't know who Jesus is. They've never seen Jesus. They've never heard of Jesus. So go back a couple of days before Jesus shows up. These crowds start showing up. <clears throat> and they've got this conversation going on. The crowds are wondering who this Jesus person is. The, the crowds from Galilee who have shown up, thousands and thousands from Galilee, and they're telling everybody about this Jesus character who's up north. Hey, there's this Jesus guy. He fed thousands of us with one meal. We, we've seen him heal people. The people in Jerusalem are going, we've seen him heal some people too. That's pretty amazing. We've seen him heal some people. <clears throat> when you run into the fourth population is the people of Jerusalem. <clears throat> the people of Jerusalem, those are your quintessential locals. It's like going to another part of the world. Like you go down to Mexico and they've got a, they've got a price for you at the store and a different price for people who are locals, Right? So sometimes the locals only sign. This is, the, this is what you're dealing with with Jerusalem, is these would have been people who lived in Jerusalem. They were the modern-day equivalents to New Yorkers. Um, uh, they, man, they, they were cynical. They had seen everything. Nothing surprised them. New religious leaders showed up every week claiming to be a Messiah this or a Messiah that, um, dozens of them. And what would happen is the religious leaders would just arrest them 
and, and throw them in prison for a little while and convince them they weren't really the Messiah and then kick them back out. <clears throat> or worse, every once in a while, one would cause trouble enough that the Romans would step in and arrest them, and then the Romans would crucify them or execute them or do something with them. This was kind of the pattern. So the people of Jerusalem, they understand what's going on. They've heard of Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already been to Jerusalem a few times at this point. He healed a guy at the pool of Bethesda. There's a number of different things he's done. He's already created a stir in Jerusalem and then vanished. Come back, vanish. Galilee, they know about him. The rest of the world's never heard of him. So they're showing up, and on day one, day two, day three, whenever Jesus shows up, they're all discussing amongst themselves. This debate, have you heard of Jesus? Man, what's he like? Where's he from? What's the story? Should we be believing in him? What do you think about this? That's what's going on. And then we see last week, Paul showed us that Jesus shows up. He shows up and makes some comment about people trying to kill him. Okay, so go back. The crowds say, are you crazy? You have a demon? Who's trying to kill you? They don't know. They're clueless. They're from all over the place. They don't know if anybody's trying to kill you. No, no, everybody. What, what are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? They're confused. Are you nuts? You, you even demon-possessed? That's them. <clears throat> so, of course, you've got the Pharisees, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, the crowds, the locals, and, of course, the disciples, who kind of play the role of the comic relief in most stories. Um, the part of the confused, clueless people will be played by the disciples in almost every passage. Um, they never seem to know what's going on with him, and they're always shocked and stunned at, at the, the, whatever is going on with him. So you just need to understand, this is who you're dealing with. Okay, good? Now, John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, so remember, people of Jerusalem, locals, they said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? See, they, they know. So the crowds, remember last week, the crowds didn't know anybody was trying to kill Jesus, but the locals know. They know how the Pharisees work. They know how the religious leaders work. This is what you do. You kill him or you arrest him. Somebody shows up. He proclaims to be the Messiah. He starts to draw power and popularity from the leadership. They have him arrested or killed, you know, like the mafia does. A drive-by, I guess, bow and arrow situation or something like that. <clears throat> and so, is this not the man who they seek to kill? And yet here he is. Remember, he was in the temple. He's wandering around the temple. He's having conversations with people. He's talking and teaching. The locals know this isn't normal. Well, it's about, about time for the, the Jewish leadership to arrest this guy, isn't it? Man, he's kind of making a stir as far as they haven't arrested him by now. That's what they're asking. And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Could it be that the authorities know that this actually is the Christ? Remember, the Feast of the Booths is when the Christ is supposed to show up. The Jews are expecting the Messiah to show up during the Feast of Booths. This guy's shown up. He's teaching in the temple. They know he wants to have, some of them want to have him killed. Some people do, but why haven't they arrested this guy yet? What's going on here? Is there something they know we don't know? Hey, maybe they know that he's really the Messiah. That's what's going on in this passage, is the crowds are asking, asking themselves, who is this? So he's calling into question their interpretation of key passages, especially the Sabbath. This is a big deal what he's doing. He's confronting the religious leaders. The people don't trust the religious, most of the lack of faith they have in their religious leaders, by the way. Isn't it about time for them to illegally arrest this guy? Shouldn't they be executing him by now, having him killed? It's time to have him rubbed out, isn't it? I'm surprised they're not doing that yet. Hey, maybe they know he's really the Messiah. That's what they're left with. Maybe that's what's really going on. The crowd, of course, has no idea what's going on because they're from all over the world. They don't know this stuff. They're starting to catch a hint. So you have millions of people, if you can picture this correctly, 
millions of people in Jerusalem. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. Have you heard of this Jesus guy? Man, he's done these miracles. He's done these things. Could he be the Messiah? This is the big stir. This is the new big thing. A lot of people debating it. People are cracking open books of the, the Old Testament. They're looking in Isaiah, and they're looking in Micah, and they're looking in Malachi, and they're trying to figure out maybe this. What do the rules say? What is all this about? <coughs> Verse 27. So could this, the authorities know that this guy is the Christ? Wait, he can't be the Christ. Verse 27, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, this is just a weird statement. Um, it, I didn't follow it at all. Like, I'm like, this is a total non sequitur. This makes no sense to me. I don't understand. So I had to do some serious digging this week to try to find, last couple of weeks, to find out why this was a sticking point for them. What do you mean they don't, the, you know, no one's going to know where the Messiah comes from? Haven't we all been taught? I mean, we know he's, we know he's going to be a, he's going to be called a Nazarene. We know he's going to be from Bethlehem. We know he's going to come out of Egypt. How, what do you mean they don't know where he's coming from? Here, this seems to be the passage that they were looking at. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The Jews in the first century had decided to interpret this, and numerous other passages I'll reference in a second, as meaning that the Messiah was going to be like Moses. And that he was going to come... He was going to declare himself, and then he was going to vanish like Moses did for a long, long time, like 40 years, and then he was going to come back, and no one is going to know where he came from. No one's going to know who he is. He's going to be kind of this King Arthur who pulls a sword from a stone. He's a, he's a mysterious, wandering Melchizedek who's just going to show up, and no one's going to know where he's from like Melchizedek. No one knows where he's from and who his family was or whatever, and they had decided to interpret he was taken away as meaning he was going to leave. As far as his generation who considered he was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he was, going to be, he was going to leave his people and be cut off from them for a while. Now that's, that's pretty obscure. They're, they're building a whole lot on very, very little. But this was apparently kind of the, the end times conversation of that time that was going on. Incidentally, as Christians, we, re, we can reverse interpret this. He was cut off from the land of the living. What might that mean? What could it mean that someone's cut off from the land of the living? They die. That could be it. In fact, we would go with that interpretation. What's going to happen is he's going to die. He's going to be stricken for the people. Um, again, Micah, 2, Micah 5, 2 makes it clear. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, one who's a ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Like, this was also understood. So you would have had this debate going on in Jerusalem during the Feast of the Booth. We don't know where he's coming from. We don't have this kind of stuff. And other people are going like, no, no, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Somebody else might have found the passage about he's supposed to be called a Nazarene or he's going to come out of Egypt. They would have been having this debate just like we'd like to do today. Right? We learn some new piece of information. The, the news brings up something new that people didn't know before. And so we, our Dan Brown writes a new book that's, that's full of like 90... Okay, 100% inaccuracies, and then we, we sit around and we go like, oh, we need to have small groups to discuss his new book or whatever, and you go, this is, this is what they're doing, and they're debating this, which is kind of cool. They're pulling out scripture, and they're discussing, wait, I thought we were, I love the picture of the Feast of Booths being millions of Jews, whatever year this was, millions of Jews debating, studying scripture, diving in, trying to figure it out, that that's what's going on for them. It, it is a little bit confusing. 
There are times. They even reference, and, and what's interesting is they reference Song of Solomon 2.9, which talks about um, the lover being sneaky like an antelope, like he's, he's quiet like an And they go like, oh, see, the Messiah is going to be sneaky like an antelope. That's how kind of the kind of contortions they were doing with the Hebrew scripture in order to, to try to understand what was coming. And they missed it. Now, we do this stuff, again, as I said, we do this stuff all the time. I am old enough to remember, and some of you are, when the best-selling book in America was a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Anybody else remember that? Man, I had to teach on that book as a youth minister. I remember reading through it and being like, this is just, this is awful. <laughs> so, it was so bad, and yet, man, it was, it was the hot thing for a while. There was about a year, actually, un until September 1988 hit, and he didn't come back. And uh, then, then his popularity sank a little. Although, I have a copy of it. I used to collect those books. Um, I may not have it long because I just looked up on, on uh, Amazon what it takes to buy one of these books now. It's like 150 bucks to buy one now. Like, who's, who's buying this? I mean, other than pastors who use it as a sermon illustration of like, hey, don't do this. Like, what else would you? So I may be selling mine soon. Um, everybody's interested. <laughs> um, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Now, this, this blows me away. So they're debating. They're in the temple. He's up there under the Solomon portico, and he's up there teaching, and he's, he's hearing all this. You can imagine he's standing there, wall-to-wall -wall people up in the temple, and they're discussing, discussing among themselves, could it be him, could it not be him? And, oh, there he is over there, and why aren't they arresting him? And all this stuff's going on. And so Jesus, it says, proclaimed. Some of your versions will say, cried out. So this is not just teaching. This is him, he's yelling over the crowds now. He cries out, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Him you do not know. I know him for I came from him and he sent me. So if you want to go back, I just listened this week to a podcast who was claiming that, that Jesus was sneaking into Jerusalem um, to be sneaky in John chapter 7. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the whole I'm not going because it's not yet my time and then he decided to go. And this guy interpreted that as well. Jesus was being kind of deceitful and sneaky and trying to like deceitful and sneaky He's in the temple yelling. That's not very sneaky. There's, you, you, your argument, I was, I was like yelling at the podcast at that point. Like, have you read the rest of the chapter? He's not sneaking around. He's in the temple proclaiming, loudly proclaiming, yelling over the crowds. You know me. But you've got, you're asking the wrong questions. Does it matter where Jesus is from? What matters is who he's from. That's what matters. Whose am I? What message am I bringing? Whose message do I bring? That's what matters in this. And he's trying to help them see this. It's not, he's crying out. He's not being sneaky. Who? The true one. Well, some of you have had this discussion with me over the years, but um, man, one of, my, one of my, I love this phrase, he who sent me is true. That doesn't mean he tells the truth. He is truth. The one who sent me is true. I love that discussion, especially in the psychological world. Sometimes Christians, we get, we get really frustrated or, or scared or something about truth that comes through scientific endeavor or through research or through reason or rationality or whatever. Let me just clue you in on something. All truth is God's truth. There is no source of truth but God. It doesn't matter who discovers the truth. If it's true, it's still true and still proceeds from God. I've said many times, if 
If even a, an, a, a multi-level addicted atheist like Sigmund Freud, if he says something true, it's still true even though he said it. I understand why that makes you doubt it, but even if, he, if, he, if it's the truth, it's the truth, no matter who says it. It's the, the scripture that Satan quotes is still true. Just because Satan quotes it doesn't make it untrue. That's a, that's a, all truth is God's truth. It all proceeds from him. What we have to figure out is whether it's true or not. That's what we have to wrestle with. I'll talk more about that in a minute probably. But understand that he is the true one. He is the one who is true. By his own nature, he is true. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. You think? He just stood in the temple in Jerusalem and told crowds of people that they didn't know God. How do you think that went over? They're in the temple. And Jesus is telling them, you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know God. They were not pleased with this. They've been celebrating God now for probably seven straight days. For seven straight days, they had been putting up giant menorahs and lighting them. For seven straight days, they had gone down to the pool of Siloam and gotten out um, a golden bowls full of water and come and poured them out. They had quoted half the Psalms by this point this week. They had quoted from Isaiah, from every other passage. And now Jesus is going to stand up in front of these people under these lights and say, you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know God. Man, no wonder they're mad at him. So they go to arrest him. Now here's what's funny. John doesn't explain this. This is one of those scenes in the Bible that I wish I had way more information. Like I'm a, I'm a little bit of a sci-fi fantasy geek, and so I love this type of stuff. I want to know the mechanics of this. I want to know what it means that no one laid a hand on him. They wanted to arrest him. Was there like some kind of deflector field, you know, that when they would go toward him, suddenly something would distract them and they would wander off? They had the hand, you got the cuffs? I got the cuffs. Okay, let's go get him. Let's go talk to that guy first. Like was there a, like God was just deflecting? Or was there like literally like they'd reach for him and it was like, like slippery or something? Like they couldn't touch him? There was like a, you think this is, you're, like, you're not at all interested in this. I am fascinated by this. I'm like, I want to I totally understand this. There's places where it says that they sought to kill Jesus. They take him all the way to a cliff. They're going to throw him off the cliff. And literally, the gospel writer says, and so Jesus left. <laughs> I want to know that. Like, is he like the Tai Chi master of this? Like, he just, he just, just yeah, Jedi mind trick. Like, this isn't the savior you're looking for. Like, this isn't the... <laughs> It was a, that was good. I didn't use that first service. Thanks, Hugh. And so, like, he just, he just did, he, how did he do this? I would love to know. Again, however, notice that that's getting caught up now in the what and not the who again. Who sent him? John is saying, your, your natural tendency at this point would be to go, well, John, then why didn't they arrest him? He's, they've got crowds of people ready to arrest him. He's right there in the temple yelling, well, then go arrest him. John, okay, John, why didn't they arrest him? And John tells us, it wasn't his time yet. His time hadn't come yet. John feels no need to explain this any further. You can accept this or not. I can't do anything for you. Why didn't they arrest him? Well, apparently it wasn't his time. It's that simple. It wasn't his time to get arrested. As much as I would love to know the mechanics of it, what it looked like, John is not interested in telling me. What he wants me to know is it apparently wasn't his time. Just like it wasn't his time, and that's an obvious reference back to the beginning of this chapter. It wasn't his time to go to the temple and to go to the feast until it was. It's not his time to be arrested. It will be. A time will come. In fact, look at this. 
One of the things I love when we get to the end of the book of John is this very clear, in my opinion, step-by-step pathway as Jesus drags everyone to the cross. Jesus has to initiate every step. I said in the first service, Jesus is going to kick over the first domino. Here's the first domino, by the way. In John 13, 27, they're at the feast, at at the Passover, the Last Supper. When he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, him being Judas, in this passage. So after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. The hymn there, the second hymn, is now Satan slash Judas, as Jesus gives instructions to Judas slash Satan, go do it. What you're going to do, do quickly. Had you ever put that together? That the betrayal of Jesus Christ started with the instruction of Jesus Christ to betray him. That's how it begins. I don't think Satan wants to betray Jesus. Satan's not stupid. Satan doesn't want Jesus on that cross. Jesus has to instruct him to do it. And he has the authority to do so. Go do it now. Now is the time. And the opposite of this. Is it time for him to be arrested yet? Nope. When it is, Jesus will say. When he wants your opinion, he'll tell you. This is, this is it. Now it's time. Go do it. Now is the time. By the way, I love, and you're gonna, you'll see this when we get to it. It's so fun because what happens is this is the first domino, and the first domino falls, and it doesn't hit the second domino. Jesus has to go kick that one down too. He has to go hide over in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas can find him where there are no crowds. Anywhere else, crowds of people, Passover. No crowds here. He goes and finds a sneaky, a very hidden place where just a few of them can be, and they can be arrested in the middle of the night, and the guards show up and say, are you Jesus? And he says... I am Yahweh, I am, right? And of course, all the guards fall down because the power of Jesus Christ on earth speaking the words I am is more power than the world is prepared to deal with. And so the minute he says that the guards all collapse to are there to arrest him and Jesus, you can imagine he's being like, oh no, let's just wait here till they get up. <laughs> Sorry, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about me saying that, how that was gonna affect you guys. So, He has to wait there in the garden for the guards to pick themselves back up. He has to keep Peter from killing them. He's got to, he drags everyone. He gets to the temple. He gets to Caiaphas and Caiaphas can't get him convicted. He's got all these false, he can't even get his false witnesses on the same page. It's hard to get real witnesses. It shouldn't be hard to get false witnesses to be on the same page. They can't get them on the same page. So Jesus has to at the right time in the the court go, okay, here. And he speaks blasphemy, unless it's true, it's blasphemy. Oh, now we've got him. They take him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate has him beaten. And then you picture Jesus sitting in this chair, sitting in a chair or something in the room with Pontius Pilate, just the two of them. Jesus is bleeding out. He's four-fifths dead. And Pontius Pilate's wandering around going, I don't know what to do. I mean, I picture, always picture William Shatner, by the way, in this scene, playing the role of Pontius Pilate. I honestly do. I don't know why. It, just, it would work, though. But he's wandering around going, like, I don't know what to do, Bones. I don't know how to. And he's, but he's, he's going, like, I don't know what to do. With, like, if I, if I have you executed, your people are going to rise up. If I don't have you executed, the Jewish leadership is going to rise up. What am I supposed to do here? I can't win. Either way, the Romans are going to be mad at me. And Jesus goes, my, my people don't fight like that. I have a kingdom that's not of this world. If you have me executed, my people won't rise up. You get that Jesus is holding Pontius Pilate's hand and helping him make the decision to have him crucified. Jesus drags everyone to the cross. That's what this is. When it's time, he makes it happen. Right now, 
Apparently it's not his time. It's that easy. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, well, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, really? Is he going to do more than this? This guy's fed, fed, fed masses of crowds with one lunch. He's healed people from the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He's done all these amazing things. Is he going to do, is the, when the Messiah comes, is he going to be better than this guy? He can't be. So many people are beginning to believe he is the Messiah. The debate is on. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? They're discussing signs, prophecies, all that kind of stuff. The Pharisees hear the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the officers show up, high officials show up, and Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. Then I'm going to the him who sent me. You will seek me and you will find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is heartbreaking. They have no idea what he just said. But he, just, he just said a heartbreaking line that is heartbreaking for the entire race of mankind at this stage. I'm not going to leave you hanging today. I'm going to go ahead and show you. But at this stage, in the work of Jesus Christ, the statement is, where I am, you cannot come. He's going to reverse that in about seven chapters. In about seven chapters... In John 14, 2 and 3, he's going to say, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. There where I am, you may also be. He's going to reverse this. It's a different crowd. And he's about to be killed. Now he's speaking in the, at the Last Supper. This is different. I have to go prepare a place for you. Until I prepare a place, you can't go where I'm going but I'm going to do it. I'm going to go prepare a place that where I am, you may also be. That is his goal. I can't wait. That's some of the stuff in John 14 and following is just like unreal how powerful. I may take, it may take two years, more years to get through John 14 alone. It's, un, it's just, I, I can't get enough of it. But of course, his audience is completely flummoxed. They have no idea what he's talking about. When he says, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend? Notice they still didn't arrest him. Oops. I have the image now of these officers going, we need to go ask about that. So they turn and go back to the, the, the leaders, and they tell them what he said, and, and the leaders say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? See, they think he's going on the lamb. They think, <laughs> that was kind of funny considering this is Jesus. But they think, he's, they think he's going on the run. Like, they think he's, he's going to go hide somewhere. They're like, well, we can find him anywhere. We can't. By the way, why didn't you arrest him? I don't, <laughs> I don't know if they actually asked that. I was like, wait, didn't we send you to arrest him? Um, does he intend to go among the dispersion? So the, the Jewish people who have been dispersed among the Greeks. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? This shows you everything is in an uproar. They're debating this. They don't know what's going on, this or that, one or the other. They don't, they don't really know. But listen to this. This is, how this. this is how this little section wraps up. Check this out. So we've talked about this. We spent some time, we went a couple of weeks going through the feasts and the festivals, and this is part of why. This is one of the examples. This is the Feast of Booths. We talked about it earlier in the service. Earlier today, we talked about what that would have been like. Millions of people, the grand menorahs, the water ceremonies, the millions of people singing and blowing horns, and it's celebrating all this, during this whole time. During the New Testament time, the priests, for each of the seven days, the first seven days of the Feast of Booths, would go to the pool of Siloam, which, by the way, is a, it means scent, but it's a, it's a pool that is, that's significantly down the hill from the temple. It is quite a walk. 
It's not a short thing. It has recently, so you'll know like in 2008 or seven is when they found it. So until 2006, seven, eight, somewhere around in there, you couldn't visit the Pool of Siloam. There was this hilarious little pool that they had a sign up that said the Pool of Siloam. And it, it, was, it was awful, like this awful little hole in the ground. It's like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They were totally guessing. They had no idea. Digging a sewage line, they found the Pool of Siloam. It's huge. It's a massive Herod level, just like you'd expect Herod the Great to build. A massive pool. And so the people would, would march down there, down these stairs, and they would go down there and and they would get this water, and they would bring it back, and the whole time they're singing and praising. Um, they would go to the Pool of Siloam, they would fill the water jugs and come up the many steps to the Temple Mount, commemorating the long-expected anticipation of the promise given through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this promise that they're celebrating. Seven days in a row. In that day, so future, it's a prophecy. In that day you will say, oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. We did some of this today, by the way, in case you didn't notice it. He will become my salvation. Therefore, the joy with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. And on that day, you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. As they would approach with the water jugs, the people would burst forth into singing the Halal Psalms. That's Psalm 113 through 118. The people would praise the Lord. They would pour out the water jugs on the pavement. As the water poured out, they were reminded of a couple of things. How God miraculously provided water in the wilderness with the rock. And that one day, how he would pour water from heaven onto their thirsty souls through the Messiah. This, one of these seven days... When this thing is happening is when the Messiah is supposed to show up. That's their expectation. They're going to pour out this water, and the Messiah is going to step forward and say, it's me. I am that fulfillment. I will now bring the water from heaven. I will, bring quench, I will quench your souls forever. That's what they expect. That's what they predict. It's not what happens. On the eighth day, the last day, which is called the great day of the feast, the priests made no such procession. They did not pour water onto the pavement. This too was very significant. Listen to what this symbolized. God had fulfilled the promise to their fathers already. He had brought them into the promised land that was well watered, flowing with milk and honey, and they no longer needed the miraculous supply of water from the rock. It's interesting to note that on this day, and the, as they sang the psalms, which they did, they still sang them even though they didn't go do the water, they concluded with Psalm 118.82. And you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So check, you got that in your head? You got that picture in your head? All the people not going down to the pool. All the people gathered up and singing the songs. And as that, maybe, maybe we don't know when in this, on this day this happened, but maybe as those notes, as they sang that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now you know why we talk the feasts and festivals. I want you to have this correctly in your mind. Jesus stood up and cried out. Did you say it? Cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You can argue, 
wrongly that Jesus doesn't claim to be God. We'll get there. You cannot argue that he did not proclaim himself the Messiah. He did it in exactly the right time, in exactly the right way. He proclaims himself here to be the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. He is the fulfillment of the Hallel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 18. That's him. You want water for your souls? Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I really like this passage. Around here, this is one of our favorite passages, right? This is, this is one of the things that we connect to. This is one of the passages that this was all about, that this name came from. That we would be like a spring that would well up in us and would overflow into the world around us. That was the very idea. Let me take just a second and brag on you guys. So this week we had the Thomas Ministry Auction. Those of you who were here, the raising money for families with chronically ill kids, um, for foster and adoption families, um, for ways to encourage and bless that, um, those ministries. And we'll go into mo- may- way more detail, um, I think, next week. But, but again, another $10,000 was raised in just a fun evening together. That's awesome. Yep. And then... I don't, I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time, but yesterday um, at the Highland Games, which is one of our two big community events where we reach out to the community and invite them here, um, we had a, um, I'm going to read just the last part of this. This is very much so focused on that population. Everybody got this who, was, who came through. And the last little part of this says, referencing the, Jesus and his original followers, um, it says, they were heroes and they stirred heroism in the hearts of many more, most powerfully of all. If you were here, you saw people carrying and throwing heavy objects, right? Most powerfully of all, Jesus bore the ultimate weight, the weight of the sins of mankind, your sin and mine, your selfishness and mine, our lies, our bigotry, our betrayals, our rebellion, all of these he carried. It was a weight we couldn't carry on our own. He paid the debt we owed. He offers the payment as a gift for us. Accept that free gift and find abundant life forever. If you have a Bible, you can read these, come back to these concepts more in passages like Ephesians 2, John 3, and Romans 3 through 8. This, is, this was put in the hands of, according to at least one of our people, who she said she estimated that, that probably more, but minimum 1,000 people came through her tent. 2,000 people came through her tent uh, yesterday was one of the vendors who was here. So again, the fact that this is a church that supports and encourages uh, ministry into the community where we can hand the, put the gospel into the hands of people um, and who would otherwise never probably come to a church. Many of those were definitely people who would never. I, I would have guessed like somewhat less than half the people here yesterday were our church people. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't recognize vast majority of the of the people who came. It was such a cool thing. We'll continue to encourage and grow those types of ministries. That's just this week. But what is this thing that grows in us that flows out of us? What is this logo really a picture of that this central thing becomes like a spring and then water flows from it? John tells us. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, that was in John 7. We're now in 2018. The Spirit, Jesus has been glorified. The Spirit has been given. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, And it is God who establishes with us with you in Christ and has anointed us, And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Or Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So after this section of John 7, the fascinating conversation that's going on that we need to be having, who is this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? If you've accepted that he is the Christ of God, the son of the living God, that he's the son of man, the son of God, born, um, born of a virgin, lived, died, rose again, ascended into, if you believe that, then you've got the right guy. The next question is, what about the power of the Spirit in our lives? Do we live as though God himself and the Holy Spirit has been implanted in our hearts and is now like a spring that flows out of us into the lives of our family? Would our spouse say we live a Spirit-filled life? Would our kids say that? Should they say it? I mean, maybe they wouldn't, but should they say it? How about our neighbors, the people we interact with during the week, our coworkers, our employees, our employers? Would they say they see that the Spirit overflows in us? That's, that's what this means. So I want to pray that over us, that the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the temperament and the character of Almighty God himself through the Spirit would flow out of us like a spring. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word and the power of your word. Thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be involved in what you're doing. God, what a huge, awesome gift that your son came to teach these truths and then left and went back and sent us the Spirit. God, that our, our, the Holy Spirit resides in us like a spring flowing out of us. God, I pray that the people we interact with, our families, our friends, our neighbors, that they would experience the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control that are fruit of your spirit. That they would see this. That, Lord, that you would help us to learn to live a life like this. And that those who don't know you wouldn't try to do that without the spirit. But that those who don't know you would instead look to you would continue to fight through the question, who is this Jesus person? I pray that you would um, have that discussion in all of our hearts and they would repent of anything that we have about your son that's not right. Thank you, Father, for the good gifts of your grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you in your son's name. Amen.